this is Leah Roseland with the City of Lawrence. That's correct, Chair. And I believe that we just reached quorum. Yeah, I think we're there. All right. Well, good morning, everyone. Still morning, I guess. We are going to get the July 12th meeting of the Affordable Housing Advisory Board started here. Um, I think I will ask uh, Leah or someone to read the opening statement talking about the Zoom and all that, and then we'll go to public comment from there. Um, or do we need to take roll? Should we take roll first to confirm who's here? Neither on the. We can do roll. So I have. We uh, do roll. Yep. Christina Gentry, just say here when you're on. Hi, I'm here. I'm in route. I'm going to walk into the um, downtown Sixth Street building in a minute. I'm getting off the bus now. Okay. Thanks, Christina. We'll see you in a minute. Rebecca Buford. Here. Edith Guffey. Here. Thomas Howe. I thought I saw Thomas. Okay, maybe Thomas fell off. Okay, Thomas Howe is not here. Shannon Ori. Here. Sarah Waters. Here. Shannon Reed. Here. Monty Sokup. Here. Have I missed anyone? Okay, so that is. seven so i think we have a quorum all right so leah if you or whoever is going to read the opening statement then we'll do a public comment thank you mr chair i'm going to provide a few procedural reminders for the virtual meeting this meeting is being broadcast and recorded on the city of lawrence youtube channel the public chat function is disabled. All chats will go directly to city staff. When you're not participating in the meeting, please mute your microphone by clicking on the microphone icon found at the lower left-hand side of the Zoom menu. A red line through the microphone means you're muted. Please remember to unmute when you participate in the meeting. For those of you joining by phone, you can click star six to unmute your phone. When you're participating in the meeting, please keep your video on. When you are not participating in the meeting, you can turn your video off. The video icon is located by the camera icon on the lower left-hand side of the Zoom screen. You will still be able to hear the meeting while your video is off. Um, uh, you can turn your video back on when you are participating. Turning your video off when you are not participating allows the active meeting participants to be seen on screen. If you have any trouble, please send us a chat. The city reserves the right to mute microphones and or turn off people's videos to minimize distractions. Please remember to state your name every time you speak for the benefit of those listening remotely. 
For those using Zoom, somewhere on your screen you'll see a choice to toggle between speaker and gallery view. Speaker view shows the active speaker. Gallery view tiles all the meeting participants. All motions will need to be stated clearly. After a motion is made and seconded, the chair will call on board members individually to provide their vote. Mr. Chair, you will then need to announce whether the motion carried and the count of the vote. When public comment is sought on an item, individuals participating via Zoom should use the raise your hand feature. Windows and Mac users can access this feature through the participants button at the bottom of their screen. Android and iPhone users can access this feature through the more button located on the bottom right corner of their screen. For those calling in by phone, you may dial star nine. Individuals will be called upon by name in the order they appear on the meeting host screen. When you are called on, please unmute your listening device and state your name before speaking. The chair will then call. Everyone else getting audio? Yes, the audio. Yes, I'm gonna. Um, the chair will then call for in-person public comment for those without access to technology options. Staff present will direct you to the podium to speak following social distancing and safety protocols. The regular three-minute time limit will apply. Thank you. I see that Thomas has joined us or is back. So I'm having technical difficulties. I had to shift boxes. Do we do we have a uh, quorum here? We do have a quorum. Uh, yes. Okay. So uh, with that opening statement, we're going to go to public comment. Uh, we'll allow public comment on the items listed on the agenda each person will be limited to three minutes for their public comment members of the public may provide public comment on multiple agenda items general public comment on items or issues that are not scheduled to be on the agenda may be made after all regular business of the board has been conducted each person will again be limited to three minutes for general public comment so do we have anyone uh, oh. in attendance that would like to make a public comment. You can provide general public comment now if you like. Okay. Mr. Uh, Chair, we do have um, one individual here in person for public comment. Okay, if you could direct them to the podium and we'll have that comment. Thank you for allowing public comment. My name is Bobby Flory and I'm with the Lawrence Home Builders Association. I'd like to make a comment about something that is not on your agenda. Is this I the appropriate time? Getting audio on, on her? comment, I don't believe. How do we unmute her? Unmute her. It says ask to unmute. Is it time for public comment? So one more mics are muted on the bottom left. There's a mic right there. I, I'm, I'm hearing her through Zoom. Okay. What am I doing? The bottom left is unmuted. That's for us. Yeah. Oh, okay. 
Okay, I apologize to continue. Would you mind stating your name again? My name is Bobby Flory. I'm with the Lawrence Home Builders Association. And my comment today is related to the development code. The city of Lawrence will be taking a look at the development code, hiring a consultant to review it. And I just wanted to encourage the members of the affordable housing board to be involved in that and to really pay attention because that could have a tremendous impact on the cost of housing and affordable housing. So while that may not necessarily be your background or your um, what you're familiar with, I, I think it's pretty critical that everybody uh, make an effort to be knowledgeable about it. And the Home Builders Association will certainly bring issues to your attention that we think um, you should be considering and promoting. So. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you, Bobby. I appreciate that. We will try to keep an eye on that. Uh, we're certainly aware, you know, aware of that situation and what, you know, changes in the code can certainly have an impact on costs. Um, so we'll keep an eye on that. Is there anyone else at City Hall that would like to make a public comment? This is Leah Roslin, the Affordable Housing Administrator. There is nobody else present for public comment. Okay. Thank you. This is Monty Soka, Chair. Do we have anyone uh, on Zoom who would like to make a public comment? This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator for the City of Lawrence. I do see one. Hand raised, Steve Ozark, um, wanting to make public comment on Zoom. Okay. Uh, Steve, go ahead. All right, thank you. Well, hey, I wanted to um, comment today where for once I'm not gonna be gnawing on your ear to use, use the money to create permanently affordable housing. I wanted to share some good news of what uh, I've been hearing and participating in. Uh, the, the summit team for housing and homelessness has been meeting weekly. We have this Friday off so that Rebecca and others can work on the housing component of that effort. But again, I remind you that the state is offering millions of dollars for us to form a comprehensive plan to end chronic homelessness and all homelessness. And, and Andy Brown, who is the funder, commissioner at the state, uh, participates in those meetings and keeps reiterating that the amount of money is uh, historic, uh, astronomical. And the, the pushback that we hear is how to sustain that beyond this funding. So I'm hoping the Chicago study that people have referred to can be brought forward as to how much money is saved in a community when you solve homelessness versus manage it. Uh, so there I go talking about what should be done. But the, the great news is that uh, everyone's really working hard to solve homelessness, which of course has a lot to do with your work in uh, creating affordable housing. Uh, I'll leave it to the city to describe all the great things they are doing. Herculean moves to identify some 200 units of housing within their own goal to take responsibility for homelessness and the housing component of that. And more details from uh, Danny and Brad and their growing team, which you'll hear more at the city meeting tomorrow if you go. Um, I wanted to share that the by names list, coordinated entry list, which coordinated entry gives the data which allows for rapid rehousing. We have a group right now of eight volunteers that are going to be going to service providers to gather that data because the by names slash coordinated entry 
list is a key component for us to know who we serve, what the needs are, and to create this comprehensive plan and build our services around the actual populations we serve. So that's that's a really great uh, development. There's so much going on. I won't take your time, but but to know there's really positive news. And for once, I'm here to talk about that. So thank you for your time. Monty Sokup, Chair. Thank you, Steve. Appreciate that information and keep up the good work on your end there. Are there any other public comments? I am not seeing anybody raise their hand or anything. So I'm going to close public comment. We're going to move on to uh, consider approval of the meeting minutes of the June 14th meeting. I would entertain a motion to approve those minutes unless someone has changes. Thomas Howell, Lawrence Board of Realtors representative. I move that we accept the minutes as submitted. Sarah Waters, University of Kansas, second. Okay, I have a motion and a second on the floor. Is there any discussion regarding the minutes? Seeing none, I will call a vote. Christina Gentry. Christina, are you there? Yes, I am. I see um, your icon. Hmm. Oh, I unmuted. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to get some reverb. Uh, yes. Rebecca Buford. Approve. Edith Guffey. Yes. Thomas Howe. Approve. Shannon Ori. Approve. Sarah Waters. Approve. Shannon Reed. Approve. Monty Soka. Approve. Motion carries 8-0. Okay, so next agenda item received a monthly financial report. Good morning, uh, Danielle Bushcutter, Budget and Strategic Initiatives Administrator. I will uh, briefly go over the financial report uh, for you all this morning. Um, on the revenue side, um, it is not showing up in the report and I'm not quite sure why, but we will get that fixed. Um, on the revenue side, we uh, did receive about $89,000 in revenues um, in the month of June. Um, so again, another really strong um, month for sales tax, which is um, really good news. Um, so we're really excited to see that. So uh, that's the update on the revenue side. Expenditures have not uh, changed um, since our meeting last week. So I'd be happy to answer any questions, but that is a high level overview. Okay. Uh, Monty Sokup, Chair Daniel, the $6 million question is when we look at the NOFA, what uh, what amount are we going to be looking at uh, that we potentially have uh, to award in the next NOFA? Uh, Daniel Bushcutter, Budget and Initiatives Administrator. Um, I know we'll go over the timeline a little bit in that agenda item, but given the timeline of the NOFA, um, I think you all can expect to actually allocate the full budgeted amount for 2021, uh, which is $1,236,000. Okay. Thank you. Are there any other questions on the financial report? Okay, thank you. We will move on to item number two in the regular agenda, 
That is a presentation by Brian Jimenez, the code enforcement manager, uh, on the code enforcement process on rental registration. We had asked uh, for a summary on this. Um, so Brian has prepared that. So show's yours, Brian. Thank you for having me this morning. Can everyone hear me okay? Great. Okay. Um, I'm Brian Jimenez. I'm the code enforcement manager for the city of Lawrence. I manage the code division within planning and development services department. So I see a lot of familiar faces of coworkers and other people in the community. So I'm glad to be here this morning. Um, I'll, I'll, I will give a, a brief history of our, our rental licensing program and, and go through some highlights of how we do things currently and then go into some some possible um, changes that we're actually going to be exploring in the, in the next month or so. And then if you have any questions during the presentation, uh, my discussion, just feel free to ask them. I pretty informal or we can have some time at the end of the presentation as well to do that. So I'll give you a little bit of background. Um, most of you probably know we do have a rental licensing inspection ordinance within the city of Lawrence. Um, that first ordinance was adopted in um, 2001 and became effective in 2002. Back in 2002, we only regulated um, dwelling units, uh, rental dwelling units in single family zone districts. So we had a really small number that we um, managed and licensed and inspected. Um, it was discussed just about every other year from 2002 on. And finally in July of uh, 2014, about seven years ago, um, we did a substantial rewrite of that ordinance. Um, and the, the main part was the expansion of it citywide. Um, so we, we expanded it to any rental dwelling unit within the city, regardless of zoning district. And we started um, licensing um, all dwelling units um, throughout the city. Um, we fluctuate a little bit depending on, on the time and, you know, as properties sell and, and they become owner occupied. Uh, we, we average about a little over 20,000 rental licenses, um, licensed dwelling units um, within the city. Is anyone getting that feedback? Yeah, I heard it on the previous um, person as well. I don't know how bad it is, but I'm, I'm getting it. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator for the City of Lawrence. Somebody was unmuted, and it's, they are muted now, so it shouldn't be an issue. Forward. Thank you for drawing my okay. attention. Thanks, Leah. Um, so we, like I said, in 2014, we expanded the program citywide, uh, began licensing properties in uh, late summer of 2014, and we've had basically the same program intact ever since then. Um, some highlights of that program. Um, I think we have about 63, 6,500 licenses issued. Um, for example, um, multifamily apartment buildings, they typically get what we call a master license. So they'll get one a license for the, the complex or the, the number of buildings they have. So a large complex that has like 100 units, they'll have one license for that property. Um, typically, um, single family homes or perhaps duplexes make it one license um, for each property uh, on the parcel that's rented. Um, we, um, we charge a, a pretty relatively low fee per annually on that. Um, right now, it, there's a, um, a staggered payment system. Basically, it can range from $17 per unit per year down to $14 per unit per year. Um, the larger comp, larger properties, well, it's, all, it's based on the number of units someone owns. So the, so the higher number you um, own, um, the lower the rental fees. I think we're going to make a suggestion 
um, that we um, look at seriously um, changing that and um, possibly just making one one rental license fee um, for everybody regarding re regardless of how many units you um, own. Um, one key thing is we do inspect. We, we, we license annually. We do inspect. Um, it's it based on a three-year inspection cycle. Currently within the code, there's the opportunity to get an incentive, and that incentive is based on how many violations we find during an inspection of a dwelling unit. Um, if you get five or less violations, you get bumped out to a six-year inspection cycle, which is, which is quite long in my opinion. Um, there were some compromises made seven years ago, as you can imagine, with stakeholders throughout the community, and um, that's where we landed. We'll also be looking at um, whether that's a, um, a good, good policy to have in place within the ordinance. Um, we currently have um, 27 standards that are written into the ordinance. Um, those are the 27 possible violations that we could cite that would would um, factor into whether a landowner gets the incentive to the six-year inspection cycle. Um, many of you know we just adopted the short-term rental inspection program a couple years ago. Um, we did not put those 27 standards in that code. Um, we simply um, regulate the inspection through the property maintenance code that the city has adopted for about 12 years now. Um, I think we are going to make a suggestion that the long-term rental code follow the same course of um, what we in, uh, inspect under and um, just, in, just looking at the property maintenance code only. So those are a couple important things to know. A landowner, if they get those five violations or less, could have a six-year inspection cycle currently rather than three-year. Another important thing to know is um, we have a 10% sampling of a rental owner's portfolio. For example, we all, which, what that means is we only inspect 10% of someone's entire number of units. So if, if someone has, is a rather large property owner in Lawrence and they have 100 units, we would inspect 10 of those units um, a minimum of once every three years. And depending on how their inspections went, it could be bumped out to once every six years. Um, that's a pretty small sampling. As you can imagine, if we have over 20,000 plus rental units in Lawrence, um, we're doing about 2,000 um, maximum based on that. And we can even go a little bit lower because it's 10% or a maximum of 15. So currently, if someone has um, a very large number of apartment complexes in Lawrence. Um, we may actually potentially do even less than the 10% sampling. We may only do a maximum of 15. I'm sure that will probably be discussed in greater detail next month when we bring this before the city commission. Um, that's um, probably a hot topic item within the ordinance itself. Um, Brian, can I interrupt you for a second? Yeah. Monty, so good here. Uh, on the 10%, if I have a, let's say I'm a property owner and I have eight properties and you're, are you sampling 10% of those eight properties? And, you know, yes. let's say I have 300 units, you're sampling 30. So do you get to every property then? I mean, if I have, so what I'm asking is, could you know, with that math, it seems like there are a lot of properties that could get simply missed in that 10% sampling. If oh, great question, Monty. Um, you're exactly right. Um, 
the probably the biggest argument for that 10% sampling is, is exactly what you're highlighting. Um, it could be decades before you get to um, one, one apartment complex um, because um, if you do a 10% or 15 max, you do 15 of a, you know, a 200 unit complex and you get bumped out in the sixth year, um, you know, it, the math works out to the point where um, we aren't doing very many, to be honest with you. Um, that sampling size is so low um, that, yes, there, there could be, you know, there's literally thousands of units that um, aren't going to be inspected anytime soon. We tr- Another important thing to point out is when we are scheduling those inspections with the, with the landlord or the property manager, um, c- city staff basically um, reserves the right to um, choose um, units to inspect. Um, so if someone has multiple properties across the city, we're not going to just focus in on one property. We're going to try to spread those out. Um, even with that being done, you know, we're not going to get into to hundreds and thousands of these um, per year. Um, so that, that's really important to note. Yes, the sampling size is pretty small. Um, of course, we do have the tenant complaint base um, option. So any um, tenant in Lawrence um, that has control of the property that they're occupying obviously has the ability to call us and have that request inspection to come out. Um, sometimes that creates problems in itself, um, you know, resentment or um, some type of retaliation from the property owner potentially. Um, sometimes that gets a little messy. Um, but yeah, on, on the um, required inspections, 10%, um, very minimal. Um, I'm sure we'll probably look at seeing if that's what we want to continue to do or if we want to you know, do something um, more substantial in the future. So, Brian, I got another question, uh, Monty, so good to On the tenant complaint issues, are those somehow made anonymous so that the landowner, the property owner doesn't necessarily know who called? Obviously, um, if it's a one, one unit apartment, somebody's going to know. But if you have a 100-unit complex, you know, do you go out and, like, inspect three or four units instead of just the one so that those are essentially not? Because what I'm looking at, I mean, from our standpoint, people are afraid to call on report. If they're, you know, low-rent units, people then maybe become afraid to call because they're afraid they're going to lose their their rental opportunity. So we would, a concern of ours, I think, would be how that's done so that that doesn't occur. So we're protecting that tenant. Sure. Brian Jimenez, code enforcement manager for the city. Um, no, we, we, you know, you know, we always educate um, callers and say, ob- obviously, um, if, if you're calling us, you have concerns that probably need to be addressed. Um, there's always two sides of every story, of course, until we get in, out there and take a look. Um, there's really no way to, to do it anonymously because, they're, they're, you know, they're talking specifically about a their property. And um, we, we don't go out to a property and start asking tenants for, you know, a, just a, a general inspection to cover the scope of, of the, of the property in itself. Um, a lot of times when a tenant calls us, they're at the end of their rope, so to speak. They've, they, they've tried to work according to them. Um, they've tried to work with the property manager or, or owner and in their, in their opinion, they haven't gotten anywhere. So, you know, sometimes we're their last resort, so to speak. And they, they're, you know, they asked us to come out. Now it's important to uh, note that, um, you know, since March of 2020, we've pretty much have suspended 
all of our inspections and we're, we're gearing up to start those again. Our, our plan is, you know, sometime in the beginning of August to start those. So since the pandemic, every call we've got on a tenant complaint, we've been in, in the facilitator role. So we do reach out to property owners and you, know, you can imagine we know a lot of property owners and property management companies in the city because this is what we do on a routine basis. So we may have first name and, and we'll reach out to the property owner and try to facilitate a resolution um, have tenants send pictures to us to you know, document their concerns. Um, so we, that, that's been a little challenging because um, to really do a, a thorough job, an uh, inspector should be on site looking at, at the issues and, and going from there. But we you know we've had some success with that, just reaching out to people. We're fair and, and we, I think we have a pretty good reputation on, on both sides, especially with landlords that, you know, if we're calling, we, we, we want to, we want to work with you to, to resolve this and, and, you know, try to get the property in the condition it should be. Um, but yeah, the, 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 uh, anonymous, the anonymous, uh, part of that, you know, there's just really, it's really hard to get around that because, um, if, you know, if we send a violation notice out, um, that, that person is going to obviously know that, you know, one of my staff was on site and, and cited this, the code violations that are identified in the notice. So I'll, I'll continue and any other questions, just feel free to ask me. Um, so we, we, we do the inspections three years, six year. We, we do the annual licensing um, every, every year. Um, it's a little bit like car tags, depending on how the property's licensed. You could be due for a renewal anywhere from, you know, January through December of each year. Um, that's a, an annual thing. We send out notices about two weeks, about six weeks before the property's due for renewal. And then we process those um, throughout each month. As I mentioned earlier, it, we have over 6,000 individual licenses. So you can imagine we stay pretty busy with that part of the ordinance. Um, there are exemptions in the ordinance. Um, obviously, hotels, motels, um, that type of thing are exempt. Any property that's owned by KU or Haskell or the city of Lawrence are exempt. Um, sorority fraternities are exempt. Those type of um um, residences are exempt from the ordinance. And um, as I mentioned before, um, the city commission last year asked us to look at the ordinance and, and see if there was any recommendations that um, we would think, you know, should maybe be considered to improve it. So we will be going forth with some um, some recommendations or, or at least some topics for discussion to see where we ultimately land on that. Um, you know, with more inspections completed, if, if that's something that we would do, you know, it, it could mean we might need additional um, staff resources um, from that perspective. But um, that's, you know, that's something that we can discuss down the road. Um, so that's pretty much the ordinance in, it, in, in, a, in a pretty short summary. I don't want to give you too much irrelevant information to think about. Um, but, you know, we, we started the short term um, two years ago and it, it sort of mimics most of what's in the long-term um, ordinance itself and um, that's that's you know that's a much smaller scale short-term rentals or anywhere you know anywhere from 120 or, or 100 units um, throughout this community um, versus 20,000 plus. Right, thank you Brian. Uh, I have one more question and if, if we this group the housing board had 
concerns, suggestions? Would we reach out to you? How would we communicate that? Is there going to be a process on this review of the ordinance? How do we? Yeah, sure. I mean, you, that process? You, you can reach out to, to Jeff. I see Jeff's in attendance or, or myself and, and we can we okay. can work on it. I think our plan right now is, is to have this on the um, August 17th City Commission agenda. Um, so I'm, I'm working on that currently. Um, as I as I mentioned, we will we will be hitting some highlights that they that the commissioners um, identified to us previously, and then we also, being the stewards of the ordinance, we also have identified some areas that we think should be changed for for you know for good reasons, and we'll 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 discuss those reasons with the commission and the public. But yes, if if the board feels there's um, you know something that we haven't thought about or some some areas that they might like to, to see us um, discuss yeah you, you can simply uh, forward them to me and and we, we will identify those as well yeah rebecca see you i did want to acknowledge brian or rebecca buford with tenants to homeowners i did want to acknowledge that um those of us that have you know permanent affordable rental housing that the city um waives the fee so that is a support by the city and I was wondering if you have the number of of those that you have Brian because we're always trying to get a number for affordable units out there and that would be one other way we could look at that um, at some point so uh, Brian Jimenez code enforcement manager for the city Rebecca are you are you asking could I give you the number of units that have the have the uh, fee waived annually for the license renewal is that what you're referring to yes um i you know off the top of my head i think we um i know we i know we, i think we can get that information on section eight housing um because i think that's a um i my answer is i think we can do that um I don't. I don't think that would be too difficult. But yeah, we we. That's a good point. Rebecca mentioned them. Um, we do. Uh, for example, the Section Eight program. Uh, we do waive the since that since those units are um, governed by the Lawrence Douglas County Housing Authority, and they're inspected through their their program and their their system. Uh, we do not inspect those. We don't inspect Rebecca's properties either, and we do waive the annual license fee. So they do get a license annually. To show that it's a rental unit, but to, to address, um, some people can argue that seventeen to fourteen dollar fees does not affect affordable housing. But even so, we do waive that just to help as much as we possibly can. Uh, this is Edith Guffey because I, I am uh, interested. This may not be a statistic you have, but I am interested in. Um, how often the affordable housing units are inspected? Because I'm interested in the quality, the maintain the quality of affordable housing being maintained. Well, um, for example, I think I, Rebecca might be the expert on this. Rebecca, would you would you would you classify Section Eight as is affordable housing? Correct. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. So, I mean, we don't inspect those. We don't inspect Rebecca's. So we don't, I mean, we don't inspect those. If there's other, if there's other units out in the community, I don't think we have been tracking, you know, any of that, any of that um, statistical information. So I don't know if we'd be able to give that. Um, but that is a oh. good question. 
So this is Shannon Howry with the Housing Authority. Um, Edith, we inspect our units every year and we use the uh, HUDs, what they call HQS, to do that inspection. And we have reports on those. So we, we know the data of what we inspect. We do the same thing, Edith. Uh, we All of our properties that are funded by federal sources require inspections. And there's several different ways that we do them. Some of them, the city does do an inspection. Some of it, housing authority does the inspection for the funder. Um, but that those all have to be inspected annually. Um, some of them get HUD REAC inspectors nationally that come in and look at those um, every two years. So um, I would argue that ours are much more inspected than any other units uh, in town at this point. Thank you, I appreciate that. And I would really like for us to advocate that um, when we give money to any developer for affordable housing, that we also make sure that we have some provision that it's inspected on a regular basis and that it be maintained. Because I don't want us to just give money and then we don't care how it's maintained. That's just not, that's not good, so. This Monty, so reacting to Edith's question, if we have a project that has like um, some other federal funding source for housing, would that typically fall under uh, what you're talking about, Rebecca and Shannon, for a normal inspection? Like if it's a, I don't know, LIHTC project, is it gonna get those annual inspections regardless of what we do anyway? Uh, Rebecca Buver with Tenants to Homeowners. LIHTC is gonna have, um, a bunch of, yeah, the funders are going to inspect. So generally the syndicators um, and, and those are pretty intense inspections. Uh, I had to fix up a couple of sidewalk cracks that were nothing. <laughs> it was really like Lawrence crack or concrete cracks. And, uh, you know, they're pretty strenuous. So yes, most LIHTC properties and anything with federal money is going to have some sort of inspection every at least every two years okay. it depends on the funding source but that's in general i can make that statement pretty pretty solidly okay so this monty so here so the gap that we're talking about that edith has identified would be if we funded a project that didn't have federal funding or some other like that then we would need to be that group that says this needs to be inspected okay just trying to clarify that that's that's a good catch there any other questions for Brian? Yeah, Shannon. Uh, this is Shannon Reed, Douglas County Commission. Thanks so much for joining us, Brian. This is um, a wealth of information, so I really appreciate it. Uh, I wanted to clear, well, you answered part of my question about the 10% um, the, the sampling and that uh, the city reserves the right to choose those units. Um, I just wanted to clarify is that generally the practice that the city is always determining which of those that what that 10 percent is or is it true that perhaps they're being um like a list is being provided by a property owner and the city is sometimes just going to inspect those units 
Um, and then I have one more question about 10% just because they might go together. Can you tell me, is there a threshold of how many properties uh, one person or one management company might own before you enact that 10% sampling? Or is that across the board, whether somebody owns five properties or 500? Okay, Brian Jimenez, Code Enforcement for the City. Good question, Shannon. There is no threshold for the 10%. It's 10% across the board, um, whether a person owns um, you know, 10 units or 200, it, it's the 10% rounding up, um, of course. And what, what was your first question again? Sorry, I, I realized I asked it in a convoluted way. I guess I'm just curious. You said that the city reserves the right to choose sure. that sampling, which I appreciate. Is that the, the general practice? Like we, to not expect that a property owner says, here's the 15 units I'd like you to come inspect that you all are always choosing what those are? Um, that's usually our protocol. And there's one important thing to note that I failed to mention earlier in my presentation. Um, there is what there, there's a term in the, in the code called qualified vacant dwelling units. So to make things easier, we, we, you know, basically that's a dwelling unit that's vacant at the time. So if someone comes up for their inspections and those will take priority of anything that we we choose to do. For example, if a property owner has 10 properties that needed to be inspected and they call us and they say, I got three properties here vacant, we will definitely do those three. The thinking behind that was um, obviously a vacant unit is a little bit easier to coordinate the inspection. There's no tenants or uh, tenant or tenants there um, to, um, to get consent for. Um, so those do take priority, and we do quite a bit of those. Um, if they're vacant, they're um, they're easy, you know they're easier to inspect. There's no furniture, there's no personal belongings, et cetera. And I will ex just expand on the consent thing just a little bit. Um, due to the proper due to the tenant having control of the property, even though they're leasing it from the owner, um, we have always got um, we've always asked for um, consent from the tenants to inspect those units, um, so to make sure that we're not um, stepping on infringements of the fourth amendment um you know the fourth amendment really really specifies you know about legal search and seizure um but there's been some case law throughout the, uh, throughout the country about rental inspections so to cover all of our legal um um avenues to make sure we're in compliance with you know we're not violating anyone's um rights we we get um Consent inspection. Uh, consent to inspect from the tenants that occupy the dwelling unit we're looking to go into. Thank you. Um, I have one more question. To the <clears throat> so you said there's an average of twenty thousand licensed units, and that you know we have a number of large rental complexes, and so you, you said that there's a master license level. Um, which I'll, I'll just note that I don't love the, the word master um, as a description, maybe primary uh, or, or something else. But I, anyway, I'm just curious, are there other steps below that? Like, or is there just one, is there a threshold by which there's that master license for really large number of units or are there other thresholds for different types of licenses? Um. There, there's basically three different types of licenses that we do. We do a single family, a multifamily, and then the master license. And I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples. Obviously, the single family is pretty self-explanatory. It's single family dwelling and typically your detached house. Um, the multifamily, 
um, can be, you know, um, a, a, a duplex, a triplex. Typically, those masters are for large um, complexes that are your, typically your apartment complex. Um, but if, for example, we have a development and it's all duplex and it's, it's all owned by the same person, um, we quickly realize that person doesn't want, you know, say there's 20 duplexes in a development and they're all owned. They don't want 20 licenses. Doesn't make any sense from a clerical standpoint and time. And, and then, so what we learned was, you know, we, we need to rethink this. So if it, if it, if the area acts like one piece of property that's owned by the same person, we'll give one license for those 20 duplexes because they're all owned by the same person. So there is some leeway there to, to, to change it up a little bit, but typically we got three types and um, there's really no threshold for the, uh, the master license. Okay, thanks. That is very helpful. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Right. Thank you. This is Monty Sokup, Chair. I am, unless someone has a burning question, I'm going to close the discussion on this. We have a lot yet on our agenda and we need to keep moving, but Thank you, Brian. That was very helpful. I, I learned quite a bit. I'm sure everybody else did too. Hey. I'm Anybody have any burning question for Brian that we need to? Christina, is that, are you raising your hand over there? The microphone. It's not a burning question, but it is a question. Um, I'm not hearing Christina. Can you hear me now? Oh. Yes, Monty, <laughs> are you able to hear me? Um, so my question is, as a follow-up from what was shared in this space, um, you also referenced a little bit about discrimination um, and um, how those are captured by the people who give discrimination, like, and to talk about what is, um, has been their instances and experiences. And I think I heard you say, and correct me if I'm wrong, that those instances are, are um, difficult to, to you know, capture because there's, you know, there's a lot of nuances and also some maybe um, some biases that exhibit themselves, but I, I want to just bring this back to a conversation we were having earlier. Well, it was in June, and I was sitting here trying to figure out what date it was. It was June 10th, and the Douglas County Human Service Coalition had a presentation that was given by the City of Lawrence, and Elizabeth Hoff. Hafika, who is a supervising city prosecutor, talked about how there's very little discrimination um, instances that are given by the community as far as how they can take inventory as how what is being done and how people are responding to um, the situations at hand. So. What I also heard from that meeting was that there aren't any discrimination instances where people are talking about city discrimination policies or something they exhibited or something they experienced in the city, but there are a lot of housing discrimination experiences. Um, and as so much they were, there were an exuberant amount that we 
didn't know what that amount was. So Elizabeth wasn't able to give us the amount of how many people had um, shared their discrimination and their, their unhappiness with the experiences that they had with the housing situation um, that they had um, and experienced. But maybe, as I'm listening to the person who was speaking earlier, there was something that you could share with us about how housing discrimination um, has been captured by the folks who have spoken on it. And if there is, I would love for a couple of minutes for that to be shared out. Brian Jimenez, Code Enforcement Manager for the City. I'm not quite sure. I, I think I'm, I know what you're asking. Um, um, when we get calls from tenants regarding um, complaints, um, we, we obviously don't track um, ethnicity, race, um, any of that type of stuff with, with our, our complainants. Um, I would say 99% of the time, it's it's always about the condition of the property and, and um, there's no discrimination issue being relayed to us. Um, that's kind of outside the scope of what we do, obviously, um, you know, we're code enforcement. Um, now, are there instances where maybe that has occurred in the past? Absolutely, but it's so minor that I can't even come up with one for you as an example, because when people are calling us, it's always about this needs to be fixed and my landlord is not doing it. Um, or I've tried it, they've come out to fix it and they haven't done it right or something like that. So, you know, we, we are, we are going out to when we when we um, restart inspections, we are we are going out um, with the, the the prime reason to to be is is ensuring that from a property maintenance minimum standard housing um, code perspective that those those codes or their their concerns are being addressed. Um, so um, I, I would say anything to deal with um, blatant discrimination is is really not um, part of the process when they when they call us thank you I think I was trying to capture what was said earlier in your comments about um, there was a um, instances where we you were able to capture some of the clientele um, experiences. And I think I heard you say that there was instances of, of a capture or something of, um, to me, spoke to experiences with discrimination. I think I was leading with that only because it was something that I wanted to follow up with because <clears throat> there was an instance um, where information was shared out that lacked housing discrimination. And so when you're talking to us about the experiences and the instances, um, I wanted to see if there was something more that you can share out. And I think I heard you say something about um, how the, the nuances weren't something that you um, could really, I don't know, share or 
but I wanted to make sure if there was a time and an opportunity um, to share information that you had about housing discrimination, that this was one of those times. And if you had any information, that you would be able to share it out today with us. Uh, Brian Jimenez, Code Enforcement Manager for the city. Uh, the, the, one, the, the one thing I can definitely tell you is um, if someone is calling our, our department, regardless of gender, ethnic background, race, any of that stuff, they, they have gotten sideways, so to speak, with their property owner, either um, rightfully so, or, you know, there's, like I said earlier, there's always two sides. So there, there is definitely concerns expressed to us when people call us about um, whether there's undertones of discrimination there, um, it's not discussed with us, but the, the, the biggest concern is in those situations is they obviously are going, they're basically telling on their property owner, right? That they're, they're calling the city to make this person fix something that hasn't been corrected. So um, that's that's the tenant's main concern is, well, is the, is a, is the property owner going to withhold their, um, some of their security deposit now, or are they going to um, be unfair to them now that they got the city involved? So those there are those concerns expressed to us, um, but I don't think it ever gets to the point that they are concerned they're calling us and they're gonna be discriminated against because of, of, of their skin color when they call us. It's more about just telling the city that their landlord isn't doing what they should do, if that makes sense. Thank you. This is Christina Gentry, a uh, member at large. I don't think I made it very clear or specific about skin color or race or ethnicity when I asked the question earlier to you. I was trying to understand about discrimination or any of the uh, instances where you could share out uh, as they re relate to housing issues that you can uh, kind of uh, give more information to. So um, I appreciate you honing in on what you think was my objective, but I don't think I made it like clear that I was wanting to know about race and ethnicity as it pertained to, to discrimination. I was wanting to know about housing discrimination because there was a little bit of information that I wanted to know as a result of a, a presentation that was given by our city um, earlier that had um, very little discrimination um, information, but what we were told in that presentation was that there was housing discrimination, that there was uh, not a time, or there wasn't something that they were able to say at that space. Um, so if there was, for example, there was zero discrimination coming from the city or coming to the city as it pertains to um, practices and policies. but. What we were told was there were a lot of housing discrimination instances that that person wasn't able to share out, um, who was part of the city, that I wanted to see if you do and you could share if you had that information. So um, again, thanks for the information uh, that you're able to provide. But, but since you're here, I think it's relevant to ask you if you have any information that's relevant to discrimination that we would want to hear it and I would want to um, have an opportunity for you to share. Uh, Brian Jimenez, Code Enforcement Manager for the City. Um, no, I, I do not. I, I think that's probably really outside most of the time of our scope of work with, with tenants. 
Um, I'm not disputing any type of housing discrimination. I know it probably does occur, um, but yeah, we, I just don't have any direct knowledge of that. Okay, thank you very much. Christina Gentry, member at large. Okay, Simon B. Soak up chair. Um, I would just, Brian, I guess I would uh, just to elaborate on that a little bit. I guess I would hope that if you guys do identify some issue like that, that there is a avenue within the city to bring that forward. Um, and I don't know who that would get reported to, but if you see something like that, that there is a way to call that out and raise, uh, you know, regardless of why someone's discriminated against. And that, that could be just if someone reports and then has trouble, you know, getting kicked out or whatever, and they report back somehow, they're essentially being uh, discriminated against for having reported on their own property to try to improve their own condition. So, um, I don't know what that looks like, but I would hope that there's a way within the city that that can occur. So um, with that, if there's another, any other, not any other questions, I'm going to close this. Mr. Chair. Ian, did you have something? Mr. Chair, this is, can you hear me? No. I think you press a little button. <laughs> Monty, can, Mr. Chair, can you hear me? Yeah, barely. Okay. Uh, this is Leah Roseland, uh, Affordable Housing Administrator for Dave Lawrence. I just wanted to uh, clarify with that question that there is an entity with the city of Lawrence that looks at and investigates and will address issues of housing discrimination. Um, that's the Human Relations Commission. Okay, thank you. Thank you for that clarification, Leah. Okay, we're going to move on to the next item. Uh, that is discuss the affordable housing advisory board membership option. Oh, no. Consider taking action to remove board member per section two, article five of the affordable housing advisory board uh, bylaws. So as we just talked about uh, at our last meeting, um, we have Cole Brown who has not been in attendance um, for, the, uh, for several meetings. And under that policy, uh, we should, uh, we need to remove him and then ask that a new, uh, a new appointment be made by the city board. So I have a, a draft of a um, motion uh, that I can put out there. Uh, so um, I move that the Affordable Housing Advisory Board elects to recommend a new city board representative to the AHAB to replace Cole Brown, having involuntarily resigned his position per AHAB bylaws. I second that motion, Thomas Allen Lawrence Board of Realtors. Okay, so we have a motion and a second on the table. Is there any discussion? Um, I would like to add that we did try to reach out to him multiple times uh, and just could not get any response or had no response. Um, I know there was concern expressed last time about his well-being. Unfortunately, we don't, I believe we do not know anything about that. Uh, is that correct, Leah? 
This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator for the City of Lawrence. That's correct, Mr. Chair. We tried reaching out several times via phone and email and didn't get a response back. And uh, so unfortunately, we're not able to check on his well-being, although we certainly hope that he's doing well. Okay. All right. If there's no other discussion, I am going to call the roll for a vote. Okay. Christina Gentry. Um, I'm voting to say yes or no to eliminating Cole. Is that was that what we're trying? To That's correct. If you yeah. vote yes, if you vote yes, you will. We will remove Cole and recommend that the city appoint someone new. I'm going to say no. Okay. Okay, Rebecca Buford. Yes. Edith Guffey? Yes, with regret. Thomas Howe? And I would echo Edith with regret. I vote yes. Uh, Shannon Ulrey? Uh, also yes, with regret. Sarah Waters? Yes. Shannon Reed? Yes. Uh, Erica Zimmerman, who I didn't know joined us. Yes. And Monty Soka, yes, again with regrets. Um, I would suggest that we um, ask the board uh, or ask the, the city to, uh, I guess that would be the mayor that makes this appointment to um, recommend either someone who has experience as a user of affordable housing uh, or someone that has some expertise in the area of affordable housing. Uh, one of those two would be our, would be, a, a, I, I think we can express a preference as a board. Um, is there any discussion on that thought? I would like to see one of those two kinds of people added to the board, if possible. I'm sorry, can I can I inter, interject? This is Christina Gentry. Sure. Uh, I said member at large, but this is a person who has received or is receiving housing assistance. I think I'm, my position here is as a person who has received housing assistance and, and can maybe talk about how the implementation of additional members would benefit our board. So as I'm listening to you, Monty, speak, you made it a uh, suggestion to um, incorporate me a member who would replace Cole in, in, a, in as a person who has experience with affordable housing um, and or has some kind of um, professional, I guess, place in affordable housing. So I guess what I'm asking you, Monty, is to clarify what you would like the board to look like in a replacement of coal. Um, and if we're going to implement or invite someone else to replace um, the member that we've just uh, voted to yeah. exit, what would that look like? 
when you have given a little bit of, of um, talk about what you'd like it to look like as a person who comes in as a replacement. Um, okay. So yeah. a little bit of clarity about what you just said. And so I know what it is that you, um, or we know, um, I think I'm asking for clarities for the last sentence or two sentences that you just shared out to the group. Okay, so um, I get, I'm not sure how to put it clear. I guess I would be looking for, uh, and make it's an at-large position. So the mayor can basically, as I understand it, and correct me if I'm wrong, can choose anyone he wants from the community. It's an at-large position of the community. So what I'm I'm requesting, or what I would like to request uh, of the mayor is to appoint someone that either has experience with using affordable housing or living in affordable housing or you know making a purchase of a you know a subsidized unit or whatever. Someone that has experience in one of the the things that we support, or alternately, someone that you know works in that industry or has expertise. It might be somebody at the university that studies affordable housing uh, or something like that. I don't I don't know what who that person is or what, but I would like to see one of those two kinds of people on the board as opposed to uh, someone that doesn't. Uh, bring any intimate knowledge to the board. Thank you for the clarity. This is Christina Gentry, person receiving or has received um, housing assistance. So ultimately, we're asking for a person to come onto the board who may hold many positions, including um, someone who works in the housing authority um, and also someone who holds positions in our community that not very clear about how lived experience would make a difference into how our board is structured. So what I'm hearing from you is that you would like to have someone who is knowledgeable about affordable housing opportunities, which is ultimately everyone who lives in Lawrence Douglas County, who either pays rent or owns a home um, and also works in the spaces that um, we look to make as our move to understand and create more housing opportunities or affordable housing opportunities. So the reason I say this to the board, and, and I don't want to take too much time with how I feel about Cole's exit, is because I remember meeting Cole um, during the pandemic, um, and it was as a result of him working as an essential worker at a, not to give too much information about where he was, he was working as a essential worker in our pandemic. So um, I know that Cole is someone that we have listened to and has played a very pivotal and important part of our conversations um, because he is someone that lives the experience of the, everything that we're trying to help create for our environment and our community. So 
to eliminate coal makes sense because of the rules and relations that are part of this board. However, the last year has been outside of the scope of what the rules and regulations should be because of the pandemic and because we have really had to, I think, man, like we had to have to manipulate how showing up looks like for our board and showing up looks like for the things that we're trying to create as far as leadership and opportunities. And so as I understand how coal is, um, makes sense to have him, um, you know, voted out and not be here, I do not want to take, um, I do not want to make sure that, I do not want to talk about how essential worker, workers in this environment who have, um, haven't been able to show up the, in the way that I think a, a board and membership would have um, really respected um, during the pandemic. And so I feel like if we're asking for the board or asking for the mayor to incorporate someone to replace um, Cole's absence, what are we asking for? And how does that make um, us also take into account how difficult it may be for a person to show up in the space who has lived experience, um, who may not be able to show up at 11 o'clock on a Monday? Um, so I just wanted to make sure that we were giving space and opportunity to talk about Cole's absence and why his absence is um, here and then what can we do to make sure that we have lived experience people who are able to show up and uh, give us their experiences so that we can, as a board, um, make sure that we... Um, taking inventory to how important their, their place is here in the space. Thanks. Uh, sort of chair. So I, I'm trying to synthesize what I'm hearing from you, Christina. And what, what I think I'm hearing is that our, your preference at least, or the idea that you want to place forward is that we would replace Cole's position with someone else that has experience using or taking advantage of uh, affordable housing or struggling with affordable housing in Lawrence. Is that what I'm hearing? Because we we want we like what Cole brought to the the committee when he was here, but since he can't be here and we really haven't been able to contact him even. He can't serve that role on the board. So we want to replace him with someone that has a similar voice on this committee. Is that what I'm hearing from you? Hi, Monty. Christina Gentry. Um, I'm, I'm thinking you're telling me exactly what you said earlier, which was um, you re re reiterating what you would like to have as a member in a replacement of cold. I'm asking for us to consider how our times that we meet as a board may not make it 
easy for people with lived experiences to make. And I would like for us to consider um, making it possible to uh, provide a space for lived experiences to be priority. And I think that coal is a good example of that. Uh, I feel like um, it's important for us to understand what affordable housing means. When you say, to me, when I hear you say affordable housing opportunities and someone who has experience affordable housing opportunities, I'm not hearing you say someone who has um, been impoverished and without resources and then also um, has looked towards uh, and filled out an application to uh, receive housing assistance. So if you're meaning that, I would like for that to be said because what I'm hearing you say is we would like to have a person with affordable housing opportunities experience, which is everybody here. Um, I'm not, what I'm not hearing is I, we would like to incorporate another person who has lived experience of being impoverished and housing insecure and then also has maybe barriers to showing up in this space when we have our meetings. And I don't think that that's going to be a part of our criteria. However, it should be because if we are going to really understand what affordable housing looks like for our community, we need to make sure that there are people who are poor or income impoverished and also um, have issues showing up to meetings on a Monday at 11 o'clock. And um, we're making space and opportunities for those people um, with lived experiences with um, housing insecurity to show up and be present. Mr. Chair. Mr. Chair. Oh. Uh, uh, <laughs> Mr. Chairman, this is Edith Guffey. I want to say uh, we have asked this question, and some of you around the table will remember. Um, we did ask the question, I think, uh, Christina, you weren't on the board at the time, that we asked the question, is this a time that we should be meeting if we want people to be on this board um, that have lived experiences of um, homelessness and um, um, houselessness because 11 o'clock on a Monday may prevent people from participating. And at the time, the answer we had was, this is still a good time. It may be a time that we need to reevaluate that question because we have asked that question before. So perhaps it's a time for us to ask it again. So we've not been kind of tone deaf to that, but it perhaps it's a time to raise the question again. Uh, Monty Sokup, Chair, thank you, Edith, for that clarification. Uh, we certainly can address that in a future meeting, I think, if we want, if the group wants to take that up as a discussion topic for meeting times, and I'm not opposed at all to doing that. Um, what I have on the table right now is what kind of information on the replacement of uh, the filling of the current open seat. Uh, do we want to provide any direction to the mayor at all? And what I am, what I think I'm hearing is that we want to have someone with lived experience um, in housing insecurity. 
to try to fill that seat. Is that an accurate reflection of this group? Is anyone opposed? I'm gonna to try to bring draw this to a close. Is anyone opposed to forwarding that information to the mayor as the kind of person we would like to see fill this seat as the at-large person at the open seat? Mr. Chair, Tom, Thomas Howe, Lawrence Border Realtors representative. This is a conversation which we have had. What do we want the composition of this board to look like? We've had this conversation and said, yes, we would like to have somebody with lived experience. We would like to have okay. some. I don't know why we are revisiting it. Okay. Uh, we're revisiting it. Well, I don't need to go into that. Uh, then we're going to forward, I think I'm going to ask Leah to forward the recommendation. Uh, we would like someone with lived experience to fill that seat, if at all possible. So. I'm going to go on to the next agenda item. Mr. Chair, this is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator for the City of Lawrence. I'm sorry to interrupt. Before we move on, um, so I did hear the board, a couple members requesting for the meeting time to be revisited. Is that something that the board is interested in having it on the next agenda for August? Okay, I guess yeah. I'm going to ask, or do, do you feel like, does the board feel like we need to uh, revisit that issue uh, in August or later this fall, depending on the schedules? Oh. Or should we wait until we have a new board member and then see at what time that will work? Yeah, and, and this is Shannon Howery with the Housing Authority. You know, I, I fully appreciate Christina's point. We, I mean, we have a very difficult time with getting participation in various public meetings that the housing authority have, whether we have it at 11 on a Monday or five on Thursday. Um, and so before we move the time of our meeting, I'd really like us to get some data or per perhaps a candidate that is saying, yeah, I'd love to be on, but I can't come at 11 on Monday. I need it to be X because um, while I'm certainly willing to to attend this meeting anytime that we have it, I would want it to be uh, significant that we change it so that we do encourage participation rather than it just being now we've changed the time and we still aren't getting the participation we're looking for. Hi, so this is Christina Gentry, um, person receiving or has received um, housing assistance. I don't think that I've made, um, if, if I have made some kind of um, schedule or date and solidified that with my conversation, I, I'm sorry that someone or you guys have taken that as an action. I don't think I've said, in, I'm just taking inventory of what I'm hearing. Um, I don't think I've asked for us to change or reschedule our meetings. What I do know that I've asked is that we take inventory into the lived experience that could be and absolutely should be implemented into the space of our board and then listen to how that would make our next scheduled meetings to look like. So I don't, 
I didn't say that we're going to not meet at, at Monday at 11. I just said, it, is it difficult for people with lived experiences to meet at Monday at 11? I, I don't think it's not fair to say that it's difficult to. I just walked here from the bus stop and made it here at 11.10. And I'm not saying that um, people that we want to be present are not without resources that can make it here at nine o'clock or have more resources that the people who are present in this board have. What I am saying is that if we are limiting someone, what are we asking um, to include as a, a result of that elimination? Um, I think that lived experience is the ultimate understanding and resource that is untapped and um, maybe also seen as something that is, um, well, I will just say this, lived experience does not get paid for the hours that gives the importance that is necessary to hear in this board. And I don't think that that's not without saying also how maybe Cole couldn't take off on a Monday from 11 to 1 or 2 uh, to make the meeting. I don't know what Cole's life is. However, I do know as a person who clocks out for my job at 11 o'clock till this meeting's over, the reason I'm here is that affordable housing opportunities is important to me. And so I'm not getting paid for the, my time here. Um, but I know that if someone who is having issues with income couldn't take two hours out of their day for this to be part of their time because they don't have the opportunity to make that important, even though it is important. So um, I'm just going to just continue to um, make it known um, as far as where I stand that lived experience is important and it should come with some subsidy and we should be maybe thinking about providing some kind of income or some some kind of wage or you know two hours um, would make it seem to be like we could provide some resources that would make sense for a person to feel like this was going to be um, not only worthy of their time given, but a opportunity for them to um, see themselves not taken away from the things that they need as necessities and resources that they absolutely have to have to survive, to take two hours to give us. It's Monty Sokup, Chair. Uh, Christina, thank you for that viewpoint. Uh, definitely something we keep in our sight as we look forward to putting a new person on the board and uh, trying to be able to make sure we can accommodate everyone's needs uh, to get to this meeting and and uh, have the opportunity to serve. So, okay, with that, I am going to say that we do not need to put the time on our you know this discussion of the time on our schedule at the moment until we have 
a new board member or have an issue with the time uh, uh, that is brought up by someone uh, on the board. So, okay, moving on to the next agenda item. Uh, discuss affordable housing advisory board membership options. Um, we had a memo uh, from the staff that talked about options uh, for um, uh, when we talked about, <laughs> okay, so I guess I'm going to go back to the issue. The issue has been that every time we have a, a vote on awarding, we basically take our experts that have applied and have a conflict of interest, um, and they have to recuse themselves. So we were looking at different, we asked the staff to look at different options um, for how the board could be uh, created to help eliminate that. And they came up with basically three options there. Um, Leah, do you want to talk about those options? Uh, do you want me to go through those? Uh, Mr. Chair, this is Leah uh, Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator for the City of Lawrence. I'm happy to share screen and go through those briefly, just give a very high-level overview if that would be beneficial. Yeah, I think that would be beneficial. Uh, obviously, we're getting close on time, and we have still have some other things that we have to do today. Um, I'm just I'm wondering if maybe we should defer this for until uh, next month and move on to the NOFA. Now that you said, <laughs> I think about it, we got about thirty minutes. So can we defer? Can we table this uh, till next month? This is Shannon Reed, Douglas County Commission. Uh, Chair, I was just about to suggest the same thing and maybe a motion. Uh, quite frankly, it feels like the conversations that we were just having on the last agenda item and that Christina brought up are, I mean, they're all kind of shared conversations. We're talking about membership and the makeup of membership, timing of meetings, um, which I would say a point to that is like being clear about what the length of meetings are whether that's 90 minutes or two hours is a detail. So I think that it's a larger discussion to defer. So I will formally move to defer this agenda item until our August meeting. I second that. Okay. Jana Nowry, Housing Authority. So we have a motion on a table and a second. Is there any discussion? Okay, if not, I'm going to call the roll. This is to defer this item. Christina Gentry. Aye. Rebecca Buford. Aye. Edith Guppy. Yes. Thomas Howe. Yes. Janet Ori. Aye. Uh, Sarah Waters. Yes. Shannon Reed. Aye. Erica Zimmerman. Aye. Monty Sokup, aye, that's nine zero. This is deferred to the next month. We're gonna move on to a uh, discussion of the uh, availability of funding. Uh, so I'm gonna, I think at this point, I'm gonna turn that over to Leah, right? 
This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator for the City of Lawrence. That sounds good. <laughs> um, so um, I am going to share my screen and uh, just go over the documents that are included in the agenda very briefly. Um, and then the board can have discussion. Um, so I'm going to go a little bit out of order. The first, um, the first document that I'm going to share is the goals and accomplishments. So that as um, the board is looking at the NOFA and prioritizing for 2021 funding, that this can be taken into consideration. So this is the chart of uh, goals and accomplishments so far. And I've highlighted um, the unmet goals for the board to see and consider. So um, as you can see, um, low and moderate income renters who would want to become owners have more options for purchasing affordable units. The goal is 121 have been funded to date. Uh, low and moderate income persons with accessibility needs are able to get the improvements that they need. Uh, the goal is 125 in five years and 39 have been funded. Um, and then finally, low and moderate income residents living in housing in poor condition have improvements made. The goal is 350 in five years and 153 have been funded. Whereas the other two shown, uh, the goals have been met. Uh, Mr. Chair, would you like the board to discuss this at all or should I move on? Um, that's great information. I think we should keep moving unless anybody has any strong concerns. That's not good information to have. So, not, not, a, not a specific concern, Mr. Chair. Uh, Thomas L. Lawrence, Board of Realtors member. So uh, it feels to me like if you were to prorate those over the five years, that we are fairly well on track. Would, would that be a fair assessment? Well, the small day soak up chair, I think yes and no. I mean, in some areas we're behind where we should be on the curve and in other areas we're ahead. And we do have some difficulty in that we're not specifying what kind of projects we're looking for in our NOFA at this point. So if we, this would be something if we wanted to target, for instance, uh, purchasing options and we wanted to target those, then we should ask for those kind of projects in this NOFA or future NOFAs. I think that's what the intent of providing this information is. Um, but to date, we haven't done that in our NOFAs, so something to consider. Okay. This, I apologize, Mr. Chair. This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator. Should I continue or was there more discussion? Yeah. Okay. Yes, please continue. Okay, so the second document is a proposed draft timeline for the 2021 NOFO. Um, I do want to clarify that this board and uh, fund in the past has used the term notice of funding availability. Um, the federal government is now using notice of funding opportunity, NOFO, instead of NOFA. And so um, moving forward with 2021 language, we will be consistent with that. Um, otherwise, this timeline is essentially um, 
a replication of what the board um, followed in 2020. Um, I did want to make a couple of notes for the board to consider. Um, first, um, uh, so a few things. One is that this timeline gives a very short turnaround to applicants. Um, that may not be um, an issue for um, potential applicants who already are aware of sort of um, a draft timeline or a tentative timeline, but it may be a very quick turnaround for individuals or organizations just becoming aware of it when the NOFO is released. Um, secondly, is that um, many of these deadlines fall over holidays, and so um, that may be something that the board would like to take into consideration either this year or moving forward. Um, for a couple of considerations, if the AHAB um, were to approve the NOFO documents in September as opposed to reviewing the draft in September and then approving in October, then the timeline could be modified to allow some additional time for applicants. And then um, the board may wish to consider setting a new standard timeline for 2022 with applications due in September or October and commission approval in December or January. Um, and that could be discussed this year or, or right now or in the future, but just for consideration. So Mr. Chair, would you like me to move on or would you like to discuss the timeline first? Uh, Ms. Monty, so Chair, I'd like to discuss the timeline a little bit first. Um, I am in favor of, uh, and I think this depends a little bit if we significantly modify the NOFO from what we did last year or we slightly modify it. I think if we slightly modify it uh, and don't do a complete overhaul, I think that we could approve it in September. Um, and then we could take that extra month that's gained and figure out what the dates would look like, which would maybe we could make things not fall on the holidays and we could give more time back to the applicants. I think that is the prudent way to move forward, in my opinion. Um, so I guess I would like uh, people, other people's comments on that suggestion uh, of changing the timeline by trying to approve it in September. So, yeah. Reed, Douglas County Commission. Uh, I think I would tend to agree. I mean, my note to myself on the timeline was um, wondering why there wasn't more time for applications. And so, I, you know, obviously this is my first cycle, my first year, um, but wondered, I mean, if these are the NOFO documents that we are beginning to review and, and perhaps draft changes to, if that's possible to have done before that September date and give more time for applications, uh, that seems ideal. I was concerned about that amount of time on the top of the timeline, I guess. Yeah. Hi, it's Christina Gentry. Um, my only question is, I just can't remember when the home funding stuff overlays with us, so to not forget that. And if I, I just don't remember it all. So as long as our review periods are completely distinct, I'm okay with what was just stated to try to get it all a little bit sooner and give more time for applications to come in. So 
home and CDBG, and Leah, correct me if I'm wrong, happens in September, uh, the September 13th meeting as well. Um, this is Brad Carr, Community Development Analyst. I can address the home funding. Um, at your September meeting, uh, you'll be hosting a public hearing on uh, the 2020 what's called the caper document and so that it will be a review of how the 2020 home funds were spent and so there'll be final total numbers of how many people were assisted so at your september meeting you're not making any new funding recommendations you're just receiving a review of the 2020 results um, you won't be making funding recommendations for the home program until possibly um, march or april of 2022 Thank you. That's very helpful. So I would definitely support moving, like trying to give more time, as I think Shannon said, and Monty, you as well. And uh, this is Shannon Alry, Housing Authority. I agree. We should give the applicants more time and we need to move it this way rather than the other way because of the low income tax credits being due in February. So we need to move it this way so that they have more time rather than the other way. Christina Gentry, member at large, or person receiving or has received housing assistance. I think that we should take these uh, steps in the context of COVID. I don't think I see anything about how COVID has been implemented into these steps. I think these are um, absolutely um, movements we should make and then also extend as opportunities. This is, this is um, the, the people who have talked to, about making the extension and giving opportunities to our community. We should also maybe think about what COVID has uh, done to our community and maybe like put in some kind of asterisk or something that makes sense for these um, applications. So as I'm looking, there's a lot of um, movement that was pre-pandemic. So maybe if we were able to put something that was um, in the context of COVID in a year that we've had, um, that we could also um, extend or ex maybe even expand our outreach for applicants as they um, weigh in or you know submit during this opportunity. Thank you, Christina. I think that would be consistent with us expanding the time frame for applications and applicants. Um, um, so I guess, uh, Leah, in light of the board's seeming interest in moving the process uh, forward, uh, do we need a motion or anything, or is this just a change of the documentation and uh, process there? This is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator for the City of Lawrence. Um, the board direction that was just given is sufficient. I will update the timeline. Okay, great, thank you. And then if you would continue on to the next uh, item that you wanted to review, we'll go there. Absolutely, I can get my share screen thing out of the way. There we go. Okay, um, so let's next then look at uh, the NOFO. 
Um, this again is just um, the 2020 NOFO. I have not made any changes to it yet. Um, whatever the board decides regarding the timeline, application goals, funding matrix, et cetera, will be reflected and uh, can be reviewed at the next meeting. Um, so I believe that I had, um, it looks like my notes are not showing up on this document, so I apologize. Um, there were um, a few questions that I had for the board to consider, and maybe that's actually, I'm sorry, I didn't have it up. Um, um, I apologize. Let's go to the application and I'll see if I can. Um, okay. So this is actually uh, the NOFA. So, um, a few just considerations that I wanted to um, to point up for the board. Um, so one, Danielle already gave the update regarding the total amount that can be allocated and it's up to the board's discretion whether uh, you all would like to allocate that full amount with the next NOFO or uh, divide that up or reserve some funds for future projects. Um, something for the board to consider and discuss is are the eligible projects that um, will be funded. So last year it was acquisition, rehabilitation, and development. Um, in addition, 33% uh, would be eligible for um, rehabilitation of existing units, vouchers, or supportive services, and the balance would be to create new affordable housing units. So that's something for the board to decide is uh, the division of the sort of goals or buckets. Um, the other question that I had for the board to consider, and, and I'm happy to go back and look at earlier parts of this document, um, are is whether the board would like to have the applicants prepare and present um, a brief presentation again, if that was useful. Um, Another item for the board to consider is the format of the application. So last year and years past, it has been an Excel format, and we'd like to recommend that that uh, be converted to either Word or PDF to be in alignment with other city funding applications um, and perhaps uh, be easier for applicants and the board. Um, and then finally, um, the following criteria to be used for the evaluation of proposals needs to be considered and um, whatever the board decides, I will use this criteria to update the matrix um, and the application. So I, I put a note at the bottom, any additional criteria, um, and then again, I'll use whatever the board decides. So essentially, whatever is in the NOFA, um, 
whatever the board decides regarding this content, I will just use to update the other um, attachments that we have. So it may not be necessary to look at those other attachments if the board can make some decisions regarding the items just in the NOFA. And for the interest of time, Monty, I would say that we don't look at those other um, materials today. The, these highlighted items are discussed, and we look at those other um, uh, documents next time. Okay, Leah, so let's, uh, I'm going to suggest we go back to the top of the document and just hit these one by one and have a discussion about those. So the first one I see here is, uh, do we want to award the total amount of available funds that may or may not be the exact number because i believe that's a projection at this point but in the boundary of 1.2 million dollars um are there any thoughts on that uh, my thought is if the funds are available then we should be spending them and trying to get them on the road as fast as possible i'm i'm going to suggest that we fund whatever use fund whatever funding is available Anybody in disagreement with that, speak up now. Okay, so we are going to uh, allocate all of the funds. Eligible projects would include acquisition, rehabilitation, development of affordable housing, and supportive services. Um, so that the community has accidentally. Uh, I think. Is anyone uh, opposed to this language or think that we need to add or take away from this language here on eligible projects? I think it's pretty broad and covers the spectrum. Okay, so I'm seeing anyone, I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask these questions in the negative so make sure people have a chance to speak up. Does anybody object or need to make a change to this language? Okay, seeing no changes, we're moving, we're gonna keep that language. Okay, the advisory board wishes to target up to 33% of available funding to eligible products that provide services such as rehab of existing units, vouchers, and or supportive services, uh, with the balance of the funding going to eligible projects that create new housing units. Okay, any thoughts on that? I, know we're, I knew we were gonna have thoughts on that. <laughs> Edith, I think Edith got her hand up first. So. Yeah, um, I would not, uh, I have an objection to that language because I think we inserted that language uh, last year because of COVID. And um, I would not want us to be constrained by that. We may choose to do that, but I would not want it to, us to uh, make that commitment at this time. Okay, I saw Shannon Reed had also raised her hand. Yeah, uh, Shannon Reed here, Douglas County Commission. Uh, thanks for that. A bit of context is because my question was where that split came from to try and understand where 33 and 77% came from and how much how much conversation really happened that distinguished between those types of projects. I was just curious to hear from some, I guess, more experienced membership, what impact that that split in that language has had. Yeah. So it's Monty Sogup Chair, I'll try to fill in some of the blanks. Again, that was partly, like Edith said, partly due to COVID. 
Um, and we wanted to make sure that we had, because of the emergency kind of special needs that were needed, that we people knew that we were going to be making some significant investment in that area. Um, I think that's really where that came from. We just kind of had to draw a number out of the air and we picked that. I'm in agreement that we should remove the percentage. Um, certainly we will receive projects of both types of projects. And I would rather see us work a little bit on having a better way to evaluate the projects than worrying about what uh, percentage goes where. We can evaluate all the projects and argue about or discuss uh, the validity, the, you know, the need for each of those kind of projects if we have the right kind of data. So, um, so is it true that previous to the, the COVID year and that discussion, there was never a split? This is just kind of a... Enough. Okay, good to know. Thank you. Well, and, and this is Sarah Waters, University of Kansas. We put this out as part of this document, and then our initial recommendations did not follow this because we had a large project that we gave all of the funds to, and then because we felt that that outweighed um, this ask, and then when that project needed to delay, we went back, and I think we looked at this a little bit more, but to Edith's point, I agree. I, I, I think we remove it. Um, because we don't actually follow it once we look at pieces and the matrix will be critical, especially if we're going to change who gets to vote on what. So that conversation at our next meeting will be really important because if this, many of the service providers can't be involved in certain pieces, especially them, um, on when, depending on how the proposals come in. So, and if we don't look at the matrix separate, we do get quite a bit of conflict of interest. Okay, so uh, I am sensing a consensus that we want to <laughs> remove the 33%, uh, the, any percentage in there, uh, and reword that or consider removing it. So I guess I'm going to direct Leah to take those comments. I don't want to work on the wording here. Please come back to us with wording at our next uh, meeting that revises and takes that out, and then we'll if we feel the need to wordsmith it at that point, we'll do that. Okay, moving on to the next, seeing no objections, we're moving on to the next line. Um, okay, applicants are asked to bear a very brief presentation to present the Affordable Housing Advisory Board and, and, and be prepared to answer questions. I, I'm gonna chime in on this right off the bat. I, strong, I feel strongly that we need to have this it's our only opportunity to ask questions. Um, and if, you know, if we, obviously if we have the materials ahead of time, you can formulate questions you have, you know, that you wanna ask. I think that's probably the most meaningful part of the process to me. I'll leave it at that. So I wanna leave it in. This is Sarah Waters, University of Kansas. I agree with you, Monty. I would like to make sure we put a time limit, though, on that presentation, if possible, of, you know, up to no more than whatever's appropriate, if it's five minutes, um, because that did constrain some of our ability to ask questions during the last round when a presentation went longer than I think most of us anticipated it would. Great. So what, Sarah, thank you. I appreciate that comment. That's a good comment. Let's, uh, what do we think is an appropriate amount of time for a presentation that we can agree on amount there? Is that five minutes? Is that seven minutes? Is, 
Anybody have thoughts? People that do these presentations <laughs> maybe have a thought. I recall some somewhere there was a an overall time. So maybe if Leah could look at that for us, like to me, a five to like no more than a seven minute presentation in a maybe 12 to 15 minute window. And so no more than half of whatever time we're giving them should ever be a presentation. And I know that's pretty broad, um, but that would be my bias. So if we had 15 minute presentations back to back to back for, you know, or 15 minute windows, six of that is presentation and then questions are questions and then we're on to the next Does that sound like something close okay enough direction for you leah uh, i apologize <laughs> this is leah Rosson, affordable housing administrator for the city of lawrence yes thank you okay. um great um so let's move on to that uh, do i have any objections to that Okay, seeing none, we're going to move on. Mr. Uh, Chair, Mr. Mr. Chair, yeah, I'll go just briefly. It feels to me like we have not had uh, a whole, I mean, I, I think a little more time in presentation just because we have not had to ask an awful lot of questions. The presentations are usually fairly fleshed out. I might say eight minutes of presentation to seven minutes of questions. Okay, I think I'm okay with that. I think it's going to flex, obviously, but we're going to stay. I think we need to be solid on that 15 minute window so we don't squeeze somebody out uh, of their their time. So, okay, moving on. Uh, completed Microsoft Excel application workbook. My personal opinion is I always leave that to the staff that they have to. They're the ones that process all that and, and take all the complaints. I would, whatever the staff thinks is best is probably the direction I would go. Uh, any I, objections to that? Again, not an objection. Uh, Thomas Hyde Lawrence, Board of Realtors. I might ask the participants in our board who do these, what they think about that. So Rebecca and Erica and Shannon and, uh, Oh, my head. But so, you know, if we could, if we could ask the participants who do these, what their thought is on that. I, I'm fine with that change. Rebecca Buford with Tenants and Owners. I second Shannon. Any of those formats are are very easy to do. Erica Zimmerman, Lawrence Habitat. I really like the Microsoft Excel workbook. I find it way easier than um, working in Word. However, I'm supportive of the staff deciding what works best for them and um, the process. This is Sarah Waters, University of Kansas. I, my ask would be that when the document's produced after the submissions, though, it's relatively consistent, which I believe is what the Excel document did. It, for me as a reviewer, it makes it much easier to have very similar template for every presentation or every submission. So whatever format, ultimately just consistency between those would be much appreciated. Yeah. Um, I would also add, I mean, having read these for the last couple of years, the, it seems like there's a lot of uh, the same information repeated in the application on multiple questions and ways. I don't know if there's a way 
to consolidate that a little bit and us still get all the information we need. But it seemed like to me that was just a, per, a layperson reading uh, the applications. So I might ask that we consider looking at that or uh, tightening that up a little bit if that's possible. Uh, this is Edith Guffey, a member at large. I was also wondering for those of us who review this, uh, I'm going to tell on myself, but, you know, I'm not looking at all the financial IRS stuff. I assume that's all in place. Could we organize what we get to the information that we need so that we don't have to wade through all of that other stuff to get the, the data that we are going to be looking at just to make it easier for us to review it? This Monty soak up chair. I, that's a good suggestion. I'm going to ask Leah to kind of look at that overall, uh, the format, the how it's laid out as far as the information. Certainly, the city's. You know, we need our staff people to have that IRS information and all that. But certainly, uh, we're relying on the staff to review that and make sure that's in order and make us aware of any uh issues if, if there are any so um lee if you could just kind of take an overall look and we'll make at least one iteration and modification of the process in this nova without you know recreating the wheel uh that'd be appreciated okay i'm, I'm sorry if i'm really close to the camera you're so small on the right hand side <laughs> i'm trying to see people's reactions and, and read the read the room and put my face right up there against the camera. It's probably not all pleasant for y'all. <laughs> okay, so the criteria. Now this is, uh, we got not too long here, but um, I'm just gonna read the criteria and if someone has, wants to comment on something, just raise your hand or jump out here. So complete application overall presentation, uh, qualifications and ability of applicant, uh, to complete the project within the time set forth, uh, extent to which project meets the goals of the Affordable Housing Advisory Board. Um, I would just comment on this, that if we want to target specific projects somewhere earlier in the NOFO, we're gonna have to identify those things we wanna target and then this will become more important. Not sure we're there yet, but uh, I would say that how the funds are leveraged, uh, financial capacity of applicant to complete the project, uh, target population being served as it relates to area medium income. Okay, physical location of project. Uh, current stage of the process the project is in, if it is capital in nature, i.e. construction, land acquisition, rehabilitation, if we get that, uh, how the project will impact the code, address the impact of COVID-19 on the community. I'm not sure we necessarily want to retain that. Certainly open to discussion. This is Sharon Reed, uh, Douglas County Commission. I, 
I would say it's it's worth retaining for now. I mean, it's an ongoing pandemic and ongoing impacts that we can't foresee yet. Okay, I'm okay with that. Anybody object to that, retaining that? Okay, uh, res responses to racial equity, impact analysis, and executive leadership and or board members who identified as BIPOC community members. I'm okay with that. I think we shouldn't be the last bullet point, my opinion, uh, but it's certainly important. This is Commission. Um, I will, I guess, I'll admit that while I have the application process and I did flip through it, I didn't really, I didn't do a side by side of these criteria that we're evaluating and looking at um, how all of those questions are maybe reflected in the application. So I guess I just want to pose the question to the membership at large. Does anybody feel that there are criteria that we're looking at that isn't um, clear to the applicant or clear in the application process that that is a piece of the puzzle for us, so to speak. Does that question make sense? Like, is there anything on this list that we're looking at that may not be obvious to the folks applying that that's a criteria we're considering? Uh, this is Edith Guffey. When I read uh, some of the applications last time, I didn't feel that there were some of the applicants that didn't really think we met that last one because they didn't address it at all. And um, I took that into consideration when I scored them. Um, I actually wanted to call them up and say, okay, did you miss this? <laughs> or I, I just couldn't understand, they didn't answer it. Um, <clears throat> And so I didn't know what to take from that. Was it because it was last? Was it because it was new or what? This is Christina Gentry, um, member who has received housing assistance. I think we threw that in as an equity outreach, like poll. I don't think we examine that in a way that was um, and gives that space and, and that sentence or that um, objective the, the respect it deserves. I think we threw it in as a result of us wanting to, or me, thinking that we wanted to make sure the equity and, out, and equitable outcomes was part of our outreach for applicants. I think it was definitely something that we should um, examine and if we can make it so that it is explained in a way that applicants understand and also in a way that our board understands as equity looks like for um, applicants who, um, you know, trying to make sure that these are housing opportunities for them. And, um, yeah, <laughs> it's like equity as a... Um, not a priority, and I don't think we gave it the priority that it deserves. So if we could at some point examine that and expand upon it, that would be great, I think, for our board. This is, sorry, Mr. Chair. 
Yeah, go ahead. Uh, this is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator for the City of Lawrence. Um, just a couple of notes. One, it's 103, um, so just for your consideration, Mr. Chair. But also, um, there were several items that the board said that was going to be used as an evaluation criteria, which actually was not on the scoring matrix. And racial equity was one of them, so that actually wasn't used um, in this way to quantify uh, prioritization. So I was just recommending that any of those criteria that the board does agree upon that are listed in the NOFA be included in the matrix, matrix including the racial equity question. Smonty, so Chair uh, Leah, I agree that if we have those listed in the NOFA, they should be in the matrix somehow. My question on the way that, if you'll go back to the uh, the list of things, is it, it looks to me like we're asking in this bullet point down here, whether there is executive leadership on the team of the applicant. And my question is, should we be, I mean, that's an important thing, but should we be looking at the outcome of the project as opposed to uh, the leadership of the company making the application. I'm asking the question because I'm. To me, it would seem that uh, how the project impacts uh, those populations is more important to me, it seems like, than who sits on the board of that company. And I'm not trying to diminish the you know, importance of having people in leadership be on, in those companies, but uh, I'm not sure we have any control over that or that, that maybe it should be a criteria. I don't know. Mr. Chair, this is Leah Roseland, Affordable Housing Administrator for the City of Lawrence. I just pulled up the application so that the board and public could see the specific racial equity question. So as you can see, it's two pages and does include outcomes towards racial equity in addition to um, the ability to impact who will be burdened and or benefited. And then in addition, um, any mitigation strategies. Um, so, and, and then they're also asked to attach the um, uh, race and ethnicity of leadership. So that's just one of the components of the racial equity evaluation. Okay, then I'm gonna suggest that maybe our bullet point gets wordsmithed a little bit because I didn't read that in the bullet point. Okay. The application looks like it covers it, but I didn't read that in the bullet point. It seemed very specific, so maybe it needs could be generalized or modify to include project impact, team leadership, that, those kind of things. Okay. That sound like a fair request to make of the staff and then come back to us with a revised bullet point this is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator for the City of Lawrence. Absolutely. Thank you. Okay. Um, Leah, I think we have gotten through all of the things on this document that you asked. It's 107, uh, 108 now. I am 
I guess I should ask, do people need to leave? Do we have another five minutes? We could wrap up probably the remaining items or defer them. Um, looks like we maybe have lost a few people already. So, all right, we're gonna move on to item six. Uh, I'm gonna suggest we defer this item uh, to the next meeting. Um, any objections to moving, deferring that to the next meeting? Okay. There's no action taken, so I don't think we need a motion to move that. Uh, quick updates, fair housing ordinance. Um, I believe we had just, I believe Leah, you had prepared just a quick update on that. Is that correct? This is Leah Roslin, Affordable Housing Administrator for the City of Lawrence. Yes, Mr. Chair, it's a very quick update. Um, at the June Affordable Housing Advisory Board meeting, the board wanted staff to look into a potential human, um, sorry, fair housing ordinance. Um, staff is recommending that the Affordable Housing Advisory Board work with the Human Relations Commission um, to explore um, any potential ordinance. The purpose of the Human Relations Commission is to, quote, eliminate discrimination in employment, public accommodations, and housing, including the study of the problem of discrimination. And so as a next step, um, I have met with uh, Dr. Faris Mohammed, who is the staff liaison to that commission. Um, and we are proposing that uh, the staff liaisons meet with the chair of both boards to discuss uh, potential next actions. Uh, okay, given that, I'm going to ask, does anybody on the uh, board object to that approach at the moment? Obviously, we'll come back to this board. Okay, seeing no objections, we will proceed in that way. Thank you, Leah, for that groundwork and providing that option. Um, other new business, does anybody have any new business to bring up? Okay, I'm seeing no one waving their hand. Uh, on the calendar, we have uh, um, on August 9th, we have the recommended housing trust from budget from the city manager's office identified a property list, which we specifically asked for uh, that the city may have uh, that maybe could be leveraged in the um, in, in affordable housing opportunities. So I think on August 9th, we're going to have a presentation from them. And then, obviously, we already talked about the CDBG uh, and home uh, hearing we have on September 13th. Those are the upcoming events. And then our next uh, meeting in October or August. We have our next meeting in August. Any other else for the record? Okay, thank you for sticking with us. Um, we have a motion to adjourn the meeting. So moved, Edith Guffey. Seconded, Thomas L. Lawrence Board of Realtors. Okay, um, any discussion? I'm gonna call a roll. Christine Gentry. Yes. Rebecca Buford. Yes. Edith Guffey. Yes. Thomas Howe. Approved. Shannon Ory. Yes. Uh, Sarah Waters. Yes. Shannon Reed. Yes. Erica Zimmerman. 
Yes. Monty Soka, eight. Motion passes, or Monty Soka, yes. Motion passes, eight, zero. We are adjourned. Thank you again for sticking with this through. All right, thanks everybody. Thanks everyone.